Section 11 of The Private and Public Life of Abraham Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Brandon B. The Private and Public Life of Abraham Lincoln by Orville J. Victor. Chapter 11. New Laws and the Battle Summer of 1862. On the 6th of March, 1862, Congress received a message from the President suggesting the adoption of measures for the gradual emancipation of slavery. He proposed the adoption of a resolution resembling the following. Resolved that the United States ought to cooperate with any state which may adopt a gradual abolishment of slavery giving to such state pecuniary aid to be used by such state in its discretion, to compensate for the inconveniences, public and private, produced by such change of system. Such a proposition, he said, on the part of the general government sets up no claim of a right by federal authority to interfere with slavery within state limits referring as it does the absolute control of the subject in each case to the state and its people immediately interested. It is proposed as a matter of perfectly free choice with them. This important war measure was received with satisfaction in almost all loyal sections of the country. A note of outside approval was blown to us from England the liberal press of that country complimenting the recommendation of the president as a fair and magnanimous policy, brightly in contrast with the gloomy action of the rebel authorities. Mr. R. Conkling, of New York, prompted by this recommendation of the executive, introduced, a few days thereafter, in the House of Representatives, a resolve embodying the emancipation views of the message. It was vehemently opposed by the rebel-sympathizing members, but, when put upon its passage, was adopted by a vote of 89 to 31, subsequently passing the Senate, also, by 32 to 10. The act, as passed, was approved by the President April 10th. This resolve was generally regarded merely as an experiment but its passage was an important step in the development of the anti-slavery sentiment fast taking hold of the minds of all loyalists. On the 9th of May, General Hunter, commanding the military department which included the states of South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida, issued an order declaring all slaves within his department to be thenceforth forever free, as a purely military necessity whereupon the President issued a proclamation embodying the order of General Hunter, but rescinding the same, preferring, in case necessity should require it, to reserve to himself the promulgation of such orders, instead of leaving the question to the decision of his military subordinates. In this proclamation, Mr. Lincoln then quoted the resolve of Congress, already referred to, and appealed to his fellow citizens in most earnest language for a calm and enlarged consideration of the subject. 
when the first steps are taken toward the consummation of some grand humanitarian principle, others quickly follow. Progress proceeds from steps to strides. Slavery was abolished in the District of Columbia in the month of April, 1862. In making the Act of Congress to this effect a law of the land, Mr. Lincoln transmitted to Congress an approving message. During May, the ports of Beaufort, Port Royal, and New Orleans were declared open to the commerce of the world. The President sought, and obtained on the 12th of July, a conference with the members of Congress from the border states, in order to urge upon them, if possible, some action of their respective states in the direction of gradual emancipation, earnestly feeling that such action could not fail to strengthen the loyalty of their several states, and detach them still more indubitably from the cause of the slaveholders' confederacy. Mr. Lincoln addressed these representatives upon the subject in his usual direct, earnest way. A majority of the members, thus eloquently and earnestly appealed to, submitted a reply, in which they dissented from the President in his view that the adoption of emancipation measures would be beneficial to the cause of the Union, or hasten the termination of the war. But a minority submitted a reply of their own, in which was expressed a substantial concurrence in the wisdom of the President's views. The confiscation bill followed, preceded and succeeded by other important measures, and Congress adjourned on the 17th of July. On the 6th of August, a great war meeting was held at Washington, at which President Lincoln was present, and delivered a characteristic speech. The great official act of the year and of the century followed, on the 22nd of September, 1862. The cause of freedom had proceeded in the path of progress from steps to strides. But here the chief magistrate made a forward leap. Upon that day he issued the famous proclamation, whereby all persons held as slaves in the rebellious states were pronounced to be, on and after the approaching New Year's Day, forever released from bondage. This bold step soon proved its force against the traitors by the estimation in which they held it, most of the southern journalists denouncing it as an incentive to the slaves to rise in insurrection. A resolution was offered in the rebel Congress offering a reward to every Negro who should, after the 1st of January, 1863, succeed in killing a Unionist. In fact, The whole rebel populace, as well as their sympathizers in the North and in Europe, were terribly exercised and outraged. There was method in their madness. Their denunciation of the cruelty and inhumanity of the measure was in the same spirit in which General Beauregard, at a later day, threw up his hands and piously whined at the Greek fire which the long-ranged guns of the Yankee commander scattered through the streets of Charleston. Two days had only elapsed since the promulgation of the Emancipation Proclamation when another mandate of almost equal importance dropped like a bombshell amid the ranks of the rebel sympathizers. 
This was the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus. Herein it was ordered. First, that during the existing insurrection, and as a necessary measure for suppressing the same, all rebels and insurgents, their aiders and abettors, within the United States, and all persons discouraging volunteer enlistments, resisting militia drafts, or guilty of any disloyal practice affording aid and comfort to the rebels against the authority of the United States, shall be subject to martial law, and liable to trial and punishment by courts martial or military commissions. Third, that the writ of habeas corpus is suspended in respect to all persons arrested, or who are now, or hereafter during the rebellion shall be imprisoned in any fort, camp, arsenal, military prison, or other place of confinement, by any military authority, or by the sentence of any court-martial or military commission. This act, unquestionably called for by the growing danger of the spirit of treason being excited by the friends of slavery in the North, strengthened the President's hands to a degree exceedingly distasteful to those who were not ashamed to aid and abet the enemies of their country by voice and pen. Such dangerous characters were, at any moment, liable to be grasped by the strong hand of military law. They accordingly set up a general and doleful howl through the newspapers and speeches, proving not only their disloyalty beyond a question, but demonstrating the wisdom of this offensive act. The beneficial effects of this order were not long in manifesting themselves, as all interference with enlistments ceased from that date. This was, also, the famous period which has since been termed the battle season of 1862. The summer had witnessed the discomfiture of the great army of General McClellan, which had proceeded to the capture of Richmond so confidently and slowly. It was driven before the rebel bayonets down the peninsula, and consequent gloom pervaded the north. Small space is here accorded to the treat of the controversy which arose, after this disaster, as to who was directly responsible for it. The friends of General McClellan defending their hero zealously, and heaping all the blame upon the President and his Secretary of War and the lovers of government defending it against these assailants with equal energy, attributing the defeat solely to the incapacity and timidity of McClellan. It is difficult to foresee the verdict of the future and dispassionate historian. But, by few candid reviewers, at the present time, can blame be attached to the executive. Certainly, in permitting himself to be defeated by an inferior force of the enemy, General McClellan displayed at least one proof of his incapacity as a military chief, and his whole correspondence with the President and Secretary of War, after going up the peninsula, was of a tone entirely inconsistent with the relations which should exist between an inferior and a superior in command. Take, for example, the following extract from a dispatch to the Secretary of War demanding instant and perhaps impossible reinforcements. If I save this army now, I tell you plainly that I owe no thanks to you 
or to any persons in Washington. You have done your best to sacrifice this army. From the tone of this missive, one would imagine that the person addressed was some recusant employee of the writer. Among the candid and loyal of all classes, McClellan gained few friends by his frequent and petulant efforts to shift the burden of defeat from his own shoulders to those of higher rank and greater dignity. In truth, was there ever a whipped soldier who did not find a thousand other reasons for defeat than his own incapacity? It is an easy refuge, and discomfited men fly to it with ready haste. McClellan's whole course, whenever he wrote anything, appeared to bear the impress, on its very face, of a desire to manufacture political capital among the disaffected of the North. The least likelihood of a Negro gaining the boon of freedom excited his holy indignation. The tuneful Hutchison family were unceremoniously kicked out of his army the moment it became known that a vein of anti-slavery sentiment pervaded their songs. Although the particular piece, which excited this virtuous indignation, was a masterpiece of one of our noblest native bards. The batteries of strictures which were turned upon him may have been partially unjust, but he does not seem to have refuted them by subsequent development nor by his own course. General Pope was appointed to succeed McClellan in the immediate command of the Army of the Potomac. And, on the 27th of August, General Halleck, who had been called to Washington, ordered McClellan to, quote, take the entire direction of the sending out of the troops from Alexandria, end of quote, to reinforce General Pope, who was being hard-pressed by the powerful rebel army near Warrenton Junction. By this time, however, observes Mr. Raymond, towards the close of an able review of the campaign, General McClellan had become recognized as head of a political party in the country and a military clique in the army and it suited the purpose of both to represent the defeat of the Army of the Potomac, under Pope, was due to the fact that General McClellan was no longer at its head. And, upon the urgent but unjust representations of some of his officers, that the Army would not serve under any other commander, General Pope was relieved and General McClellan again placed at the head of the Army of the Potomac. And, on the 14th of September, he commenced the movement into Maryland to repel the invading rebel forces. President Lincoln, in all his correspondence with General McClellan, was patient and gentle to the last degree. He ever reproved with kindness. And, though he may have occasionally been a little sarcastic in his replies to the commander's petulant complaints, those replies always were in a familiar, suggestive vein, and usually in the form of private letters. The country was filled with sorrow by this disastrous summer, but drooping spirits were revived by the glorious struggle of Hooker and Burnside at Antietam and Perryville, which, if not actual victories, at any rate relieved our soil of the invaders, east and west. Thus closed the eventful year of 1862, 
so full of events calculated to affect the destiny of the country in a momentous degree. To the Congress, which convened in the ensuing December, Mr. Lincoln transmitted a message of characteristic terseness and power, chiefly devoted to the subject in hand, the war. But we have no room for extracts. It commanded unusual attention, both in the old and the new world, and was generally regarded as the exposition of a just man and a wise ruler. End of section 11.